Well, as you know, um, I started teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night, and uh, I am always so conflicted because uh, whenever I preach a message, I just feel like, um, man, the whole church needs to hear this truth, and, and I just feel like we go places when we go through books of the Bible, and I just want everybody to come along and uh, for no one to be left behind. And so uh, Wednesday night is a love-hate thing for me because I know not everybody can come on Wednesday night, but I really have this compulsion to preach through uh, other books of the Bible on Wednesday and uh, to supplement what we get here on Sunday morning. And so typically I teach New Testament on Sunday and Old Testament on Wednesday. And and I'm just finding uh, I've never really studied the Old Testament and taught the Old Testament uh, before. And so as I get into... Uh, these Old Testament books, I'm just overwhelmed going, where has this been all my life? And uh, boy, I, I need this truth in my life. And, and I feel like everyone in our church needs this truth in, in their lives. And so um, I, I preach a message on Wednesday from time to time and I go, man, I wish the whole church was here tonight so that we could uh, be impacted together as an entire congregation at the, what the Lord is teaching us. And so This morning, I want to uh, revisit what we talked about this past Wednesday night, and I know for those of you that are here, that were here on Wednesday, I apologize for that, Um, although one of the great injustices of preaching is that you preach a message and then you have to put it away for five years, uh, long enough for everyone to forget that you ever preached it, right? And then you bring it back out of the file, whereas singers, you know, they get a, you know, they can be a one-hit wonder, Right? They get one song that just makes it to the top, and they just sing that thing over and over and over again, and people will play it over and over again, and nobody ever gets tired of it. They can't get enough of it. And us preachers, man, we got to work really hard, right? We just got to keep cranking them out every week, whether they people like it or not, right? And, uh, and anyway, so I want us to consider the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope that, that um, while I know all, all of you are not able to come on Wednesday nights, that maybe this will encourage you to try, try out the bridge on Wednesday night for, for, for the first time maybe for some of you and come this Wednesday and uh, dive into this series with us that will take us probably through the end of the semester up until the end of May um, or at least get online and listen to these messages uh, during the week so you can feel like you're a part of where the Lord's taking us uh, as a church. And, uh, and I also know that there are people that you rub shoulders with every day who need to hear the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm talking about primarily unbelievers who are seeking satisfaction or looking for meaning in everything but God. And uh, this is the message that they need to hear. And so maybe you could begin praying for that person and invite them to come and be a part of our series on Wednesday night. And so I want to just introduce this, this book to you this morning, and I trust it will inspire you and excite you to whether it's come to Wednesday night to, 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 to just study yourself and to make sure you understand what is in this great book and what it has to offer us as God's people. Well, one of the most influential Christian books written in our modern time is a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this classic defense of the Christian faith, but in it, Lewis penned these profound words. And I mean profound. And so don't miss what he says here. Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. 
A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes on, he says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Sadly, most people on this earth never come to what seems to be such an obvious conclusion that there must be something more to life than what we experience here in this world. And so they go through life desperately searching for satisfaction and fulfillment and worldly pursuits and pleasures, all of which leave them feeling empty and unhappy. And no matter how much they accomplish or no matter how much they accumulate in life, there's this sense of dissatisfaction and disappointment and even disillusionment. Life to some seems like a cruel joke or, as, as Lewis suggests, a, a fraud. Life doesn't make any sense to them. They, they feel ripped off. They feel lied to. Nothing has delivered what it promised. Life has let them down. They feel frustrated or just plain bored. I think there's a lot of people who feel like a rat in a maze, just frantically scurrying up and down these blind tunnels, hoping to find true meaning in life, but every pathway they choose leads to nowhere. It's just futility. Others may feel like a a hamster on a treadmill. We've all seen that, right? That little hamster endlessly running and running and running, but never getting anywhere or accomplishing anything of real value, and, and you feel trapped in this vicious circle. It's just the monotony of life is maddening. You wake up. You get dressed, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you go to bed. You wake up, you get dressed, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to bed. You wake up, you get dressed, you go to work, you read the newspaper, you go to bed. And the whole time you're thinking there's got to be something more to this life than this mundane routine. And at times the futility and the monotony of life can be so overwhelming to some people that they come to the tragic conclusion that life is not worth living anymore. There's there's nothing worth living for, and the only escape from this meaningless existence is to end their own lives. And I think this is primarily what's behind suicide. But believe it or not, There's really no better place to be than at the end of yourself. Because when you get to the end of yourselves, you come to the beginning of God. And it's there and nowhere else will we ever find what we've been really looking for in life. You see, the most basic desire of every one of our hearts is for meaning. That's what the human heart longs for is purpose. We, we all want answers to the same questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Why am I here? Where am I going? And the book of Ecclesiastes addresses these critical questions of life, but be warned, it doesn't offer any pat Sunday school answers. It's brutally honest. 
shockingly so, and extremely relevant. I mean, we know the whole Bible is relevant, but in my opinion, this may be the most relevant portion of God's word for those of us living in the 21st century that is so narcissistic, which means so self-absorbed, and and hedonistic, which is just all about our pleasure, finding something to satisfy ourselves. And so as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to have a hard time believing that this was written almost 3,000 years ago. And at the same time, we're going to wonder at times, how in the world this book got in the Bible? Because it says some things that if taken out of its context, appear to completely contradict the rest of Scripture. In fact, this is, this is atheists and religious skeptics' favorite book of the Bible. Because they find statements, verses that they, qu- they can quote from in order to support their, their cynical and their skeptical philosophy of life. But the book of Ecclesiastes, while so often misunderstood and misused, delves into the problems and the perplexities of life, unlike any other book of the Bible, in order to direct us to to, to the true purpose of life. And so it gets us where it wants us to be, but it takes us down a hard road to get there. And really, that is the ultimate longing of our hearts, to know what life is really about. That's what our heart longs to know. And you can describe this longing in a lot of different ways. It's a a search for significance, a a desire for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for enjoyment, a, a desire for happiness. Regardless of what you call it, this longing is totally natural. Because it was placed in the heart of every person by God himself. And Ecclesiastes reveals that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. You may want to underline that phrase that is critical to our understanding of what is going on in this book, that God has set eternity in our hearts. In other words, God created us with an awareness that we were made for more than life here on earth. We were made to live forever. And so consequently, deep down inside, we all know that we're, we, are, we are not on this earth just to please ourselves, but to please God who made us, who sustains us, and who one day will judge us. I like what Sinclair Ferguson said in his little commentary on Ecclesiastes. He called it the pundit's folly. And this is what he said about this concept of eternity, God setting eternity in our hearts. He said it this way, God created a world of beauty in space and time, but he also made us to know him and to live in his presence. He thus set eternity and a desire for it in our hearts. Consequently, we can never be finally satisfied with anything the world can offer us. Made as God's image, created for Him, we must remain forever dissatisfied until we live in fellowship with Him and for His glory. We were made for eternity, not merely for time. We were made for God's presence. And then he says this, No wonder then if there is confusion and frustration when we turn away from Him in sin. 
He said, but sin does more than frustrate us. It makes us fugitives from our destiny. Yet, in our sinfulness, we remain plagued by a sense of homesickness. Nothing in this world can ever relieve us of that pain. And so there's this homesickness in our hearts, a homesickness for heaven, if you will, or for eternal things. And yet, even though we have eternity in our hearts, as it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, we also have insanity in our hearts. Notice chapter 9, verse 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. The writer goes on and says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, for there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. In other words, our hearts are are filled with sin and wickedness, and we are so depraved, we're so deranged, that we are crazy enough to run away from God, who is the only one who can offer us true meaning and lasting satisfaction. And so without God, life makes absolutely no sense at all. It's nothing but pure madness. And that is a term that comes up often in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 17. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. Chapter 7, verse 25. I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. In other words, you will drive yourself absolutely crazy trying to find happiness and satisfaction in other things besides God. I'm sure many of you are familiar with John Piper's most famous book, the book that put him on the map, Desiring God, is the title, and the subtitle is what got him in trouble. Uh, he's received much criticism about the subtitle. It's, it's this, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And people were like, what? A Christian hedonist? I mean, those things are diametrically opposed to one another. Christians are denying themselves and hedonists are just exploiting every opportunity they can to please themselves. And so how can you be a Christian hedonist? It's an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. It doesn't go together, right? And in this book, he makes a compelling case that there is nothing wrong with with a desire to please yourself. Nothing wrong with that desire to be satisfied, to be happy, to find pleasure. And he says that God created us with that desire. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to enjoy his life. He wants us to find pleasure in this world, but he wants us, he wants also to be the one in whom we find our joy and happiness and our pleasure. In fact, Piper says it's not, the problem is not that our desires are too strong, they're too weak. We don't desire pleasure enough, and so we settle for making uh, mud pies in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gutter, in an alley, when we could be making sandcastles on the beach. 
Piper goes on to show how God actually designed mankind in such a way that it it is actually impossible for us to ever experience true joy and happiness and find true meaning and satisfaction apart from him. It's like he, he built us and left out the most important part. There, there's this, this God-shaped void in all of our hearts. And so we go through life trying to fill this void. We realize there's something wrong, something missing, something's not working right here. And so we go around trying to find something to fit into this void in our hearts. And ultimately, it's God that we're looking for. I found a commentary as I was looking for commentaries to use in studying this book. And, and uh, the, the title of the commentary was called, it was called The Divine Sabotage. And I thought, what a creative title, that it's it's in a sense that God has sabotaged life here on this earth. In other words, he's made it impossible for us to enjoy life here apart from him. It's not that he doesn't want us to enjoy life, but he wants us to find our enjoyment in him. Piper quotes from some of the great Christians of, of the faith of old, Augustine, the great church father. And his confession said this, he said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Blaise Pascal, somebody I'm sure you didn't come to church thinking you'd hear from today, right? Blaise Pascal said this, There once was in man a true happiness of which now remain to him only the dark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not find in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Piper also references the first question of the Westminster Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And typically we think of those two things, glorifying God and enjoying life, as two mutually exclusive things, like you can't do both, you've got to just pick one. And I'm either going to glorify God and I'm going to please God with my life or I'm going to please myself. And so I'll just, I guess I just have to sacrifice what I want, you know, so that I can, um, you know, please the Lord. And Piper says, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And he suggests that by changing just one word in that sentence, it will revolutionize how we view our relationship with God. And, And he suggests that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. By enjoying him forever. And this is where he came up with his now familiar catchphrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most, what? Satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That the two work together. That God is glorified and we are satisfied all at the same time. And in a more recent book, Future Grace, Piper continued this line of thinking and he wrote this very profound thought. He said, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. 
Sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. And we see this is the case in Scripture. According to the, old, uh, the prophets of uh, the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Isaiah said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Talk about dissing the fountain, right? You got this fountain of living water that you can drink from. And you say, nah, nah, I'm going to go look somewhere else. And so you go dig your own well, you build your own fountain that's a broken fountain, it's a leaky fountain, it doesn't hold any water, it doesn't satisfy you, but you still try. God calls out through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And the picture I get in my mind as I read that passage is, is, is that here we are as, as human beings over here in the trash can of life. And, and, and oh, by the way, you got to pay to get in line for this trash can. You got to pay. So, can I have a, my turn in the trash can? Oh, yeah. How much? Five bucks, 15 bucks, 50 bucks. Okay, here you go. And then we get our turn and we're in there picking through the, the trash can of life and we're looking for anything, you know, that, that might satisfy and the whole time we're rummaging through this, this garbage, God is over here saying, hello, I'm over here. Look up from the garbage can and you will see that I have this free, all-you-can-eat buffet if you have a relationship with me. And yet we're content, right, to stick with our garbage can, paying good hard-earned money for trash. But we're not the only ones who reek of the world's garbage because throughout the ages, men and women and great and small, rich and poor, well-known and unknown have searched to find meaning in life in all the things that the world has to offer. But there is one person in particular who I think stands out in history above all the rest as the one who searched for satisfaction and meaning in life more intentionally and more intensely than anyone else who ever lived or whoever will live. And his name is, of course, Solomon. And if there was anyone who could have found fulfillment in the things of this world, it was this guy. I mean, he was the richest, the wisest, the most influential king in the history of the world. He had unlimited financial resources, mental resources, political resources at his fingertips. He had the money, he had the brains, he had the power to have whatever he wanted and do whatever he wanted. And so he plunged headfirst into the trash can of life. And few, if any, have gone as far as Solomon did in, in their attempt to find happiness and satisfaction in life. He literally tried everything, everything to satisfy himself. I mean, he lived the life that many of us secretly wish we could live. He did anything he wanted. He had everything he wanted except for the most important thing, and that was meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. 
And nothing he tried, absolutely nothing on this earth satisfied him. And at the end of his life, he concluded that God and God alone satisfies the longings of the human heart. And so we need to realize that there is a God and that our lives are a gift from him. And the key to fully enjoying the life God has given us is to honor and obey him. That is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. That we need to realize there is a God and that our life is a gift from him. And the key to fully enjoying that life that God has given us is to honor and obey him. And so that's the big picture of Ecclesiastes. Now, typically the easiest and the fastest way to find out what a book is all about, whether or not you want to read it in full, right, you want to commit the time to it, is to quickly look at the introduction and the conclusion, right? You get a book, you're like, okay, I want to see what this book's about. You kind of read a few pages at the beginning, you read a few pages at the end, and go, oh, wow, that sounds very intriguing. By the way, if you don't think you have time to read Desiring God, because it's like that thick, right, do just that with that book. Read the introduction and read the appendix, and you got it. Okay, trust me, you got it. Okay, a lot of the other stuff in the middle, he's repeating himself and he's applying that, this concept to various aspects of our lives, marriage, missions, you fill in the blank, but the concept is clearly laid out in the introduction and the appendix. Those two small little sections will change your life forever. They really will. And so what I want to do, just quickly look at the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes and the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll walk away this morning, I think, with a good overall understanding of what this book is all about. Notice the first verse, Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher. The Hebrew word there, koaleth, means one who addresses an assembly, a preacher. He introduces himself again in verse 12 this way, I the preacher. And so here comes a preacher, and he's gathering together those who are reading this book and he's gathering us together, and he says, hey, I, want, I got something to preach. I got a message to preach to you. I got a sermon that I want you to hear. And so he says, hear the words of the preacher, which, by the way, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, the word used for koaleth here was the word ecclesiastes. This is where we came up with this. The, the name of the book was named after just a transliteration of the Greek, that word is derived from the word ekklesia, which is the word for what? Church, right? The gathering together, the body of Christ, the congregation. And so this is, this is the words of the preacher. Let's come together and let's hear this message. And he goes further. He says, okay, this is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And all the evidence in Ecclesiastes itself, along with all the things that are talked about, the account of Solomon's life in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, uh, clearly point to him as the spirit-inspired author of this book. No one had the wisdom that is talked about in this book. No one had the wealth that is talked about in this book. And no one had the women that are talked about in this book. And we know that during his early years, Solomon humbly sought the Lord and God blessed his life abundantly as a result. But as he grew older, his heart turned away from the Lord to false gods um, that he was introduced to by the many foreign women that he had married. And as a result, the Lord removed uh, his hand of blessing on Solomon's life, and the latter years of his life were just miserable. 
And Bible scholars have differing opinions as to when Solomon wrote this book. Some say this was kind of a, a spiritual midlife crisis, if you will. I think it seems more likely that this is something he wrote at the end of his life as he reflected on all of his experiences and, and now he was drawing conclusions and he was teaching lessons, others' lessons to be learned. And, and to me, that's what matters most is not when he wrote it, but why he wrote it. And I think that Solomon intended for others to, to, to read his autobiography and go to school on it. He wanted people to learn from his experience that, that life is meaningless apart from a relationship with God and that it's futile to try to enjoy life without honoring and obeying God. He's basically saying, listen, I tried it and it doesn't work. Life is not worth living unless it's lived for God. And so he presents his thesis, if you will, in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Anybody want to take a guess? What is the point of this book? It's right there. Now, this phrase, vanity of vanities, the word vanity is, is used close to 40 times throughout this book, probably more than any other word. And it basically means meaningless. Life is meaningless. There's no permanent fulfillment. There's no lasting satisfaction. There's no purpose. Life without God is pointless. It's nothing but a big waste of time. Everything about it is temporary, transitory, and fleeting. And he goes on to prove his thesis here by some facts, basic facts of life. Verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? By the way, that phrase, under the sun, very important phrase to properly interpret everything we're going to be reading here and studying in the book of Ecclesiastes. It just basically means when he says under the sun, he's talking about everything here on earth. He also uses the phrase under heaven. So he's just talking about earth, things of earth, everything on the horizontal, horizontal level. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking, I'm talking about things from an earthly perspective rather than a heavenly perspective. And so some of the places where you go, whoa, that's kind of crazy that he said that. Is that true? It doesn't sound true. From an earthly perspective, it's true. And he's talking about it from an earthly perspective, not from a heavenly perspective. And so you have to remind yourself when you're reading this, okay, he's talking about life from a purely humanistic perspective, apart from God, without God, kind of a godless God-less, right, life without God perspective. And so he says, what advantage does man have in all his work which he's done under the sun? I mean, what, what's the point of all the work we do? Seeing that, that eventually it comes to nothing. All we gain by our hard work will eventually have to be given up. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And so we have these, this, this generation coming and going, and everyone lives for a short while, and they do their thing, and then they die, and nothing ever really changes. You're just you know, actors coming on a stage. And, and, um, and then he talks about the sun rising and setting. Verse 5, also the sun rises, the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Just talking about the, the, the monotonous course, if you will, that the sun takes. Every day it rises and goes across the sky and it comes back down and sets and it does the next thing and it's just this round and round it goes, right? 
Verse 6, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. So we're talking about the, the weather patterns, right? The, the wind just blowing uh, relentlessly, kind of going. And, and, and I mean, every time you turn on the weather channel, you should think of the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Because you're basically watching the same thing every time you turn it on, right? Oh, here's another weather system coming through. And this is what it's going to do. And this is what it's going to look like. And oh, here comes another one. Oh, and here comes another one, right? And it's just like, okay, when are these going to stop? This is the worst blizzard ever. Oh, what about the one last year? And what about the one next year, right? This is the worst hurricane. Well, what about the one three years ago? What about the one that might happen three years from now? Verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. There they flow again. You ever thought about that? All the, all, the, all the water in the world runs into the seas, and yet the sea never rises? What's up with that? Well, we know it's the water cycle, right? The, the evaporation takes place, and the water gets drawn up from the seas, and it gets into the clouds, and it goes over the earth, and it falls on the mountains, and the, it comes down on the rivers, and the snow caps, and into the rivers, and into the lakes, and into the sea. And you got this cycle, this unending cycle. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. We're all caught up in this monotonous cycle, and, and all it does is just wear us out. Life is always frustrating and never satisfying from a earthly perspective, from a human perspective, under the sun perspective. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, hey, see this, it's new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. In other words, nothing new really ever happens. History simply repeats itself uh, don't think your life is going to make any difference because as soon as you die, what you did will be forgotten and your footprints will be washed away by the tide and no one will remember you and uh, you, uh, the planet will go on without you. And then he goes on in verse 12 all the way to chapter 2, verse 23. And he describes his life experiences, the things that he went after to find happiness. Notice he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. This wasn't just some wild party animal going out and going hog wild living just a hedonistic lifestyle. This was very premeditated. This was very deliberate. This was very comprehensive. It's like he set out to investigate the meaning of life. And he took notes along the way. That, that's what we have here. These are his notes. And so here he goes. He goes, okay, I'm going to try this. Let's try this. And so he tries some of that. That didn't satisfy. I'll try a little more of that. That's still. I'm going to try a lot of that. Doesn't satisfy. Well, I'm going to check that off my list. That doesn't satisfy. Okay, I'm going to try this now. I'll try a little of this. Well, that really didn't satisfy. I'm going to try a little more of that. Maybe that was the problem. I didn't try enough of it. So he tries some more, and then he tries a lot of it. Doesn't satisfy. Okay, I'm going to check that off my list. All right, I'm going to try this and see if this satisfies me. And he went through checking off all these things and said, guess what? I came up empty. 
It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I mean, if you wanted to put a title, a biblical title, a title from within itself on the book of Ecclesiastes, you could just call it Chasing the Wind. You ever chase the wind? Don't try it. You'll look stupid, okay? Because you can't catch the wind. That's the point. He talks about intellectual, educational pursuits, how he chased after degrees and titles, verses 16 through 18, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, how he chased after pleasures and possessions and all these building projects and talks about these sexual exploits. I mean, the guy had 700 wives, 300 concubines, okay? And he still said that didn't satisfy. Down in verse 18 through 23, he talks about how he chased after work, his career, if you will, trying to find some kind of satisfaction and meaning in what he did for a living. And he was a workaholic. He worked himself to the bone, And that came up empty. And so what was the result of this premeditated, deliberate, comprehensive investigation into life? Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. So I, what? What does it say? You see it? I hated life. It got to the point where I just hated life. I mean, that is, you can't get any lower than that, right? I mean, that's the last thing you want to have to say, right? Somebody says, hey, how's it going, man? I am loving life, man. I'm loving life. I mean, that's where we want to be, right? I'm just loving life. Well, Solomon was doing anything but loving life. He was the opposite extreme. He was hating life. But this is what happens when you try to find satisfaction apart from God. You fall into this dark, morbid pit. And you realize that life without God is a joyless existence. And Ecclesiastes would be a very depressing study were it not for the fact that Solomon eventually shows us how to have true joy in life. And so that we don't classify his personal memoirs as the cynical ramblings of a confused, depressed skeptic. Solomon emphasizes how he was able to come up out of that pit. And it was realizing that life is the gift of God to be enjoyed. And we see the first ray of hope break in on the darkness and the gloom that characterized Solomon's life when he drifted away from the Lord in verse 23. Notice it says, because all uh, his days, his task is painful, the grievous, even at the night, his mind does not rest as to his vanity. Verse 24, here it is. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of who? God. Oh, finally. Whew. God's in the mix now. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? In other words, you can't. Enjoy your life without God. And he carries this theme throughout the, the letter, or throughout the, the, his memoirs, I should say. Chapter 3, 
Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I committed pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, eat and drink your wine with cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And so we get this joyful perspective in a very unlikely place. This dark, gloomy perspective on life, all of a sudden there's all this joy. And in fact, the word for joy and gladness or pleasure, rejoicing, appears 17 times in this book. And, and, and I think this is an interesting uh, fact that Ecclesiastes is traditionally read in Jewish synagogues during the annual Feast of the Tabernacles, which is a time of joyous celebration. So that, what that tells us is that the Jews don't consider this a negative, pessimistic book, or they would never read it on such a happy occasion. I mean, it'd be like somebody gets up and reads Ecclesiastes at this Feast of Tabernacles. It's like, who let that guy in here? Why'd you have to wreck the party by reading that stuff? I mean, that was a downer. They don't see this as a downer. They see this as an upper. In fact, one commentator describes Ecclesiastes as the Philippians of the Old Testament. In other words, we know the book of Philippians is all about joy, right? And so... the. The book of Ecclesiastes, ironically, is all about joy. And this, this, this uh, joyful perspective, if you will, or this, this challenge towards joy and enjoying life climaxes in chapter 11, verse 9, in, in really a, a shocking statement where Solomon addresses young people. So children... Teenagers, if you've been sleeping up to this point, checking out, you need to wake up because this is, this is for you right here. You ready? Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where did you find that verse? You're like, don't show my kid that verse. I don't want him to see that verse. I've been telling him the exact opposite. Interesting, God's counsel to teenagers today is exactly opposite of what a lot of parents and maybe youth pastors are telling them. God says, hey, young people, go for it. Enjoy your life. Live it up. Verse 10, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Hey, this is prime time, man. Make the most of it. I know the teenagers are really awake now. They're like, I guess I like this Bible after all. 
Well, I have to point out that I've left one part of the verse out. You're like, oh, great, I knew this was too good to be true. (laughs) Notice he says, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And don't take that as a negative thing. That's a positive thing. That's not not God crashing your party. That's not God being a cosmic killjoy. Oh, yeah, go out there and have a good time, but then I'm going to give you. You're going to have to pay for it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, go for it. Have a good time. Enjoy your life. Live it up. But just make sure the things that you're doing to bring yourself pleasure and that, that are making you happy and, and the things, the, 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 the impulses of your heart that you're pursuing, the desires of your eyes that you're, you're going after are things that, that you're not going to be ashamed of someday when you stand before me. That they're all within biblical parameters, if you will. That they're all within the freedoms that I lay out for you. There was another commentary titled Joy at the End of the Tether. I thought, how profound is that? Because God does tether us, right? He doesn't just say, hey, just go for it. Whatever you want to do, just go for it. He says, just, uh, I'm going to give you freedom. I'm not going to just lock you in a cage and say, you know, stay in that cage and don't go anywhere, don't do anything, right? Go, go enjoy your freedom. But he tethers us and we can only go so far, right? He gives us a, a, a radius, if you will, of stuff that's permissible within that radius that we can do, but we can find great joy in that because ultimately we know by coming to the end of that tether and we're like, oh, man. Instead of going, oh, great, I really wanted that. And now I can't go out there. You come to realize, guess what? God desires your enjoyment. And this right here, that out there, ultimately you're not going to enjoy. It's going to hurt you. It's going to bring you pain. And so he's protecting you by keeping you from going any further. And so there's joy in that. Lord, Lord, thank you for loving me enough, right, to keep me from getting into trouble. And after describing, he, he, he really gets to this point a little bit later here, at the end of chapter 12, after describing in verses 1 through 8, the aging process, uh, we don't have time to look at it, but for those of you that are maybe uh, go, going on in years here, if you want a, a biblical description of what your life is probably looking like and feeling like right now, it's uh, verses 1 through 7, talking about how the body just, just begins to deteriorate and fall apart and doesn't function the way it used to. And then he says, verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also, by the way, I think that's why he was probably referring to himself, writing this in old age, right? And he was just kind of chronicling what was going on with his body. Yep, that hurts. Yep, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I can't see as well as I used to, right? He's just kind of saying, this is where I'm at. And make sure you remember your creator in the days of your youth before it's too late. He says, verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Who wrote the proverbs? Solomon. And so again, here's great evidence, clear evidence, that he was also the author of Ecclesiastes. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So here, while you may say, well, that doesn't, sound correct. That doesn't sound like biblical truth. 
Now, this is verification, right? That, that he was writing truth. He was speaking correctly. And then notice he says in, in verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. In other words, these words that I'm talking about, the words of wise men, I'm, I'm talking about the book of Ecclesiastes, these, these memoirs, my wise writings here are like goads. What is a goad? It's like a, a, a prod, right, that, that motivates an animal to go in the direction you want them to go. It's like a cattle prod, right? You, you, you give them the, the, the shot to, to get them going here, or if, you, if they're going here, you don't want them, you get them over here and you do this, right? It's keeping them on the track you want them on. And so listen, he's saying, listen, this, the, the words of the wise men are like goats. We're going to keep you on the right track. This, this book of Ecclesiastes is like trying to get you where you're supposed to go and not getting you off into the ditch. And then notice he says, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. In other words, if you master the wisdom literature of Scripture, Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes in particular here. If you master what's in this book, you will be like a well-driven nail. The idea is you'll be stable, you'll be secure. It's known that in ancient times, shepherds would often tether their sheep in a storm. They would just kind of put a big old spike in the ground and they would tie the sheep to that, that tether. So when that storm blew through, they didn't just get like blown away, you know? Here's a sheep rolling down the hill, right? They, they were tethered and, and the, a loving shepherd cared enough for his sheep to tether them, to provide an anchor for them. And, and God in his love for us has provided us an anchor in the storms of life, the chaos of life where it's so easy to be blown and tossed all over the place in the chaos of this world. And, and so here we, we anchor ourselves in this book that has ultimately been given to us by the one shepherd. This is ultimately the word of God, not just the words of Solomon. And then he comes to the bottom line here. Verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is, by the way, time out, spoiler warning, okay? So if you don't want to know the end of this, where, this all, where all this ends up, then don't listen right now. La, 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 don't listen, okay? But this is it, okay? Bottom line, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that word fear God, that's another one of the common themes that you see weave throughout this book, used multiple times. Fear God means to revere God, to respect God, to honor God, to stand in awe of God. And so he's saying that you, you, if, you, if you stand in awe of God, you will also obey God. And so the bottom line of life is this, fear God and obey God because someday you're going to face God. That was Solomon's conclusion. And so let me, if I could, just provide you with a, a mental image of what I think is happening here in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is, kind of helps me kind of visualize what is happening here. 
Picture yourself, if you will, standing at the crossroads of life, looking out over the horizon of the future, and we, we are all there looking at the different roads that we could choose to travel down that will hopefully lead to some kind of happiness, some kind of satisfaction in life. And there's signs on the post going in every different direction. And these signs read things like relationships or higher education or political power or athletic achievement or money or material possessions or prestige and fame or sex or drugs or alcohol. And as we're standing there surveying our options, wondering which road that we're going to choose first, something catches our eye. And at the foot of the sign, there's an old man sitting with his back against the post. And he looks haggard, he looks tired, his clothes are ragged and torn, and you see the years of, of painful experience etched in the wrinkles of his hands, his feet, and then he motions you to come on over, closer, along with all those who are standing there at the crossroads of life. And then in almost a whispered tone, he says, I regret to tell you that I wasted years of my life exploring every one of these roads, frantically searching for meaning and satisfaction, and none of them leads to true happiness. They're all dead ends. Happiness is not found that way. Happiness is found this way. You're never going to find happiness looking that way. You need to start looking up. And so simply shifting our focus from the horizontal to the vertical makes all the difference in the world because everything is meaningless under the sun. And that's why we have to find meaning above the sun and ultimately in the sun the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we all have a choice to make. We can learn from Solomon's experience and find true joy and, and meaning in life by honoring and obeying God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or we can learn the hard way. Through our own experience, if we don't just believe what Solomon has said is true, that nothing in this world will ever satisfy our soul and we sinfully and stubbornly go running down these roads ourselves? What do you know, old man? Get out of my way. You didn't try hard enough, apparently. You may have not found it, but I will. Only to find out for yourself that we were made for so much more than pursuing earthly things. That God made us to pursue something far greater and that is him. He made us for him. And if we truly understand and apply the principles in this book of Ecclesiastes, we should be able to say one day with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And because of that, I desire nothing on this earth. You guys know I like Valley of Vision, that collection of Puritan prayers, and as I've read that over the years, one prayer has stood out to me above all the others and has become my favorite. And it is really the prayer that captures 
the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And let me read it for you as I close, and may this be our prayer. It's called Man's Great End. Lord of all being, there is one thing that deserves my greatest care, that calls forth my most passionate desires. That is, that I may answer the great end for which I am made, to glorify you who has given me being, and to do all the good I can for my fellow men. Verily, life is not worth having if it be not improved for this noble purpose. Yet, Lord, how little is this the thought of mankind? Most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for your glory or the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches and honors and pleasures of this life as if they supposed that wealth, greatness, merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what false delusive dreams are these and how miserable are those who sleep in them. For all our happiness consists in loving thee and being holy as you are holy. O oh, may I never fall into the tempers and vanities, the sensuality and folly of this present world. It is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast empty nothingness. Time is a moment of vapor, and all its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. Help me, God, to know continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling of your purpose for me, apart from a life lived in and for the son of your love. Let's pray. God, may that be the prayer of our hearts. Lord, that we would always remember that there is no true happiness, no fulfilling of your purpose for us apart from a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do a a powerful work in my heart, Lord, as I study the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, that you would change me and grow me. I pray you would also do the same for all of us here at this church. And Lord, while I know not everyone can be a part of our Wednesday night service, I pray that everyone would be diligent to get online and listen to these messages so they can be coming along with us as we learn and grow and as you take us where you want us to go so we can be who you want us to be. Or maybe they'll just study this book in their own quiet time and to really uh, mine out the, the meaning of this book and they would apply it to their life. Lord, that we might truly glorify you by finding our satisfaction in you and you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.